If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, in the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, we're exploring the Maya. This civilization of Central America are renowned for their advanced writing system, their complex calendar, and their amazing astronomical knowledge. But did they also predict that the world would end in 2012? And did they really disappear without a trace? Well, in this episode, we'll be distilling Maya fact from fiction with Professor Matthew Restall of Pennsylvania State University. Putting the questions to Matthew was BBC History Magazine's editor, Rob Attar. This is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where we combine popular search queries on a topic with questions that you've submitted via social media. Today, we're talking about the Maya, and our expert is Matthew Restall, who is Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Colonial Latin American History at Penn State University, and author of several books, including 2012 and the End of the World, The Western Roots of the Maya Apocalypse. Now, Matthew, before we come on to the main list of questions, could we just clarify what term we should be using here? Is it correct to say Maya or Mayans, or could we use either? Thanks for asking that and getting that out of the way, Rob. It's Maya. Mayan, with an N, only applies to language. So so the people of the Maya, or the Mayas with, a, with an S, uh, but not Mayans. That Mayan is only the language that they speak. 
Okay, great. And so our first question is a popular search query, which is, who were the Maya? And I guess perhaps that should be rephrased as who are the Maya, because I believe there are still Maya people, you know, living living in Central America nowadays. Exactly. And so I love that question because um, it gives me a chance to rather annoyingly respond by rephrasing the question. Um, so it's a simple four-word question, and immediately I jump on it and say, no, you can't ask that question. It, As you said, Robert, it has to either be who are the Maya, which therefore lets us point out that the Maya are still around. There are six or seven million uh, Mayas still alive today, uh, defined by, as people who, more or less as people who speak Maya. Most of them are still in the Maya area. We'll get to what that is in a minute. Uh, but there's a Maya diaspora, many of them in, in Mexico and in the United States, even in, in Europe, other parts of Central America. Or you can add a word and say who were the ancient Maya or who were the pre-Columbian Maya, which is usually what people mean. Uh, and then that takes us to talking about ancient Maya civilization. Uh, so the short answer is, who are the Maya? The Maya are an ethnic group who built a spectacular civilization in Mexico and Central America and have been around for many thousands of years. And then we've got, um, I suppose, a related question, which is another popular internet search query, which is, when were the Maya around? So we, we've said they were around for thousands of years. When roughly do we date the start of the ancient Maya civilization? So archaeologists of whom I am not one as the listeners with keen ears will have spotted when you introduce me. Archaeologists uh, debate that and um, constantly are changing that as they discover more and more about the early Maya and and that date gets pushed back. Uh, but we can more or less agree on some somewhere around a thousand years BC. So we're looking at about 3,000 years ago Peoples who lived in the Maya area um, uh, have developed a, a lifestyle and a culture that we can start talking about as being Maya. And some of the other hallmarks of who the Maya were, um, like when they had to first develop their calendar or when they started writing their hieroglyph writing system. I'm sure we'll come back to these topics in a moment. Um, those, those dates tend to get pushed further and further back as archaeologists dig deeper and I mean that both literally and metaphorically. And then a question from Elliot Clay on Twitter. What do we know about the dawn of their civilization? So I suppose he means, how much do we know about the very earliest Maya? Yeah, I, that's that's a, that's a tricky, interesting, tricky question. And, you know, if, if we were on a panel here, I would turn to whatever colleague of mine was an archaeologist who worked on that early period, um, because they would say, oh, we know a great deal. Um, but actually, we don't know very much compared to what we know about later the later time period, particularly the classic period, which more or less coincides with what was the medieval period or the Middle Ages in, in Europe. Um, so there isn't a, a, a sort of a clear point where we can say, oh, this is where Maya civilization began with um, suddenly overnight they start building huge stone buildings and, and that kind of thing. It was a gradual process and, um, you know, we're, we're still kind of trying to figure out what key events or key developments change that. And I think that's probably true of any civilization that has deep roots that go back thousands of years. 
Now, one question that quite a few people have submitted similar versions of relates to the Maya and some of the other civilizations of the region. So we had this one from Jessica Roberts on Facebook, and she wrote, I always get confused between the Maya, the Aztec and the Inca. Was there any overlap between the times and places of these people? Or why is it so easy to confuse aspects of them for each other? Yeah, that's a really good question because it, they they do get they do get muddled up, in they do overlap in time, but they are really different categories. So, Maya refers to a civilization and a peoples that existed for thousands of years and still exist, and that civilization obviously changed a great deal um, over those thousands of years, particularly once Europeans arrive and all the way through into the into the modern era. Aztec and Inca aren't really civilizations. When we do talk about Aztec and Inca civilizations, but really those are political moments that only lasted about 100 years. So the Aztecs were in central Mexico. The Incas were in the Andes, uh, in Peru, what is now Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador. Um, so they were in different geographical locations. And we can talk more about that. The Inca and the Aztec did not know about each other. The Inca did not know about the Maya. The Mayas and the Aztecs didn't know about each other because they were adjacent geographically. Uh, But really, the first thing is to understand that Inca and Aztec were empires and they were political units. And when we say Maya, we're really referring to a civilization. There was no Maya empire. The Maya were not unified politically ever uh, in, a, in a single empire. They are a civilizational category that really has been created by us, by modern scholars. They did not see themselves um, as being part of the same unit uh, in any kind of sort of political or even civilizational sense. Um, if we were to go back in time to, say, the year 1500, when uh, my civilization obviously existed in its in its pre-Columbian sense, and the Aztec and Inca empires both existed and were very vibrant and, and expanding. Um, and we jump between these three locations, uh, you would be able to see, okay, these are very different geographical areas. These are very different peoples. They look different from each other. They speak different languages. And two of them are empires, and one is a region with dozens and dozens of small kingdoms and city-states. And then on a similar note, um, Ian Duncan on Twitter asked, what was the relationship between the Maya and other peoples who predate them, like the Olmec? Yeah, this is, so here's someone who really knows something or knows a lot in in, in asking this question. Um, The Olmec and a lot of people won't know who the Olmec are, right? So the Olmec is a is a, a very early culture um, that is sometimes called uh, la cultura madre or the mother the mother culture, uh, because that, that that has been problematized a lot now by by archaeologists. But the idea there was that this is a culture that existed before. Uh, other cultures and civilizations that we think of as Maya or Central Mexican, what eventually became part of the Aztec Empire and so on. So they're kind of uh, one of the early manifestations of 
civilization in in Mexico. Um, so that that goes to what we were talking about earlier about tr- about archaeologists trying to figure out what the origins are of all of these civilizations. And, and I think probably the, the the important clear thing to say at this point is that Maya civilization and Mesoamerican civilization are two categories that we've invented. And one fits within the other. So Mesoamerican civilization stretched from, stretched really in past tense, because you couldn't really say that that still exists, from northern Mexico all the way down into Central America. The Maya area and Maya civilization geographically fits right within that area and, and comprises loosely southern Mexico and northern Central America. But in terms of the countries that exist there today, it includes all of Guatemala, all of Belize, um, much of Honduras, part of El Salvador, and then a big chunk of southern Mexico, including the entire Yucatan Peninsula. So that all fits within Mesoamerica. So in terms of time, as these cultures and civilizations are developing over thousands of years, they are constantly interacting with each other. And then by the time we get to sort of this 1500 point where Europeans are about to arrive, um, it looks as if they have sort of settled and they're, and they're static, but of course they're not, right? It's a continually uh, evolving process of, of influences um, and movement of peoples and goods and ideas and so on. So it's, it's easier for us to understand it by saying, oh, this is the Maya area. Uh, there's Mixtecs, uh, there's Nawas, and so on, and identifying these these ethnic groups, and then creating these categories like Maya and Mesoamerica. But actually, it's just as complex as, say, uh, European uh, civilization, Western civilization, or let's say what's happening in the British Isles over thousands of years. Right? Try explaining uh, that interaction between Scandinavians and Anglo-Saxons and Celts. Um, in a few sentences, and you soon start to get kind of a little bit entangled, right? Because there's a constant back and forth and to and fro, and, you know, people like you and I, Rob, are, are kind of the product of that thousands of years of cultural and, and human mixing. So, but, but I suppose it's fair to say that the Maya were interacting with some of the other groups as we now define it at this period. They're interacting with people who are living to the north and south of them. So they're interacting with other peoples in Central America and they're interacting with peoples in in Central Mexico. Um, That interaction does not extend down to South America. So goods um, and to some extent ideas uh, are flowing between South America and Mesoamerica, but as far as we can tell, people are not. No individual people are traveling those distances. Um, And so in fact, when I say goods and ideas, it looks as if metallurgical skills, certain kinds of metallurgical skills were developed in South America and worked their way up into um, Mesoamerica um, without the Mesoamericans necessarily being aware of where those things came from. A, a little bit like the, f- the flow of ideas and goods between East Asia and Europe going back thousands of years, you know, right? We know that there was movement, but it's a long time before we can actually pin down, oh, individual people made that made that kind of journey. Um, and I think the most interesting relationship between the Maya and people outside the Maya area is between the Maya and people in central Mexico. And that is a complex relationship that clearly 
goes back thousands of years, back into a time where we we don't have a record or a way of knowing exactly what happened. And scholars, archaeologists have been debating for many decades exactly what the nature of that relationship was. There was a time when it was believed that people from central Mexico had come down and conquered the Maya. The Toltecs, who were people in central Mexico who predated the Aztecs by several hundred years and created an an empire, a little bit like the Aztec Empire in central Mexico. It was believed they went down and and sent an army down to Yucatan and conquered Yucatan. Um, And that that wasn't even the first time that before that Teotihuacan, which is a spectacular, huge archaeological site outside Mexico City, that the Teotihuacanos, who also had an empire in central Mexico, now going back even more hundreds of years, had come in and conquered the central Maya area in what is now northern Guatemala. Um, and now it, it's believed that the, those relationships were a little bit more complex than that, that there was uh, embassies and perhaps, perhaps armies that went that far, but did not conquer in the kind of traditional sense, that there was an arrangement that was made um, there was ch- changes of kingship. Uh, possibly, looks like there were marriage arrangements. Uh, a- and again, for us to really understand what that looked like, you just have to think of what we know about uh, medieval Britain and Europe, and how those kingdoms were constantly jostling against each other, threatening to attack, coming to agreements. Lots of diplomacy mixed with marriage arrangements and so on. So that's the kind of thing that's going on. Um, and, and that's part of why we can talk about Maya civilization being distinct, but at the same time, part of Mesoamerican civilization where there are, they have many um, cultural elements in common. Now, a question that we had from Juliet Nichols on uh, Twitter, which I think, um, as we've always discussed, some of this question phrasing isn't quite right, but uh, she asked, how did the Maya become the most powerful empire of their time in America? So, as you've already said, there weren't an empire, but I guess there's a deeper question about how did the Maya become such a successful civilization? Yeah, I like I like the questions where, as you say, the the I suppose it's a bit rude, but we can say the the the, the phrasing is wrong. But the but I like those because the point about that phrasing is it is it's telling you something about the ideas that have circulated and so on. So, the idea that the Maya were an empire is it's. There's nothing wrong with anybody saying that because if you go into a library and pick up older books written by, you know, well-established scholars of previous generations, there's talk of the Maya Empire. There's talk of such a thing as an old Maya Empire and a new Maya Empire. So this all dates back to a time when scholars were not able to read Maya hieroglyphs. When you can't read the writing that the Mayas left to us, it's difficult to figure out what the relationship was between city-states. So so the the answer to this question is there was no Maya empire. Um, How do we know that now? Because now we can read their writing. And therefore, why do we get the impression that they were so important? What, What is, if they weren't an empire, um, how are these ideas still circulating of their significance? And I think it comes back to that same thing, their writing system. So I suppose we should move on to the writing system then. Um, you, you mentioned there about the fact that now we can read their text. What were the key breakthroughs allowing us to be able to decipher their language? Um, 
so that the the process of uh, of deciphering my hieroglyphs uh, was done by uh, a series of brilliant epigraphers over the course of many decades, um, and that we can get into a kind of side conversation about particular individuals and little breakthroughs they made and and so on. I, 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 and there's a wonderful book um, by the late Michael Coe called Breaking the Code or Breaking the Maya Code, depending on which edition you pick up. And he he tells that story in, in great detail. But I think that the, the main message of it is, is that this was a team effort by scholars all over the world, including um, a couple in, in, in Soviet Russia who weren't able to, to leave and go to conferences for many years. Um, there was an Englishman uh, called Thompson who was sort of famous and both infamous because he had certain ideas, um, J. Eric S. Thompson, certain ideas about hieroglyphs that were wrong and and blocked or supposedly blocked publications of younger scholars who disagreed with him. Um, there was a Rosetta Stone written by a Franciscan friar in Yucatan in the 16th century called Diego de Landa that um, was discovered in the late 19th century in a manuscript that was circulated during the 20th century that turned out to be a false Rosetta Stone. Um, that the way in which was, was this was written down with hieroglyphs and then Spanish letters um, was completely misleading and threw many scholars off for, for decades. So it was, a, it was a gradual process of beginning to understand um, how my hieroglyphic system worked and how it was not simply pictographic, that the glyphs aren't just pictures that allow you to identify what the word is, but there was an element of that, nor were they simply phonetic, like our alphabet, but they were a combination of the two. And that the system comprises about 800 glyphs. So just saying that, you know, anyone will realize, oh, well, no wonder it took a long time, <laughs> right? That's an incredibly complex and sophisticated, and I would add visually stunning writing system. And, and that goes back to, to also to the um, earlier question about how they became the most powerful empire, um, which I would want to kind of rewrite as something like, how is it the Maya have such an amazing reputation as a civilization? Uh, that's an incredible writing system. I mean, that that ranks as, as one of the great writing systems in human history and there was no writing system that was comparable to that anywhere else in the Americas. Uh, other peoples in Mesoamerica, like the Aztecs, wrote uh, glyphically, but they had uh, variants. The Mixtecs, the Zapotecs, the Nahuas, so on, had variants on a writing system that was not the fully developed 800 glyph Maya Maya system. So I, I, I think just that alone is is an amazing thing, and also draws our attention because of the way in which the knowledge of that system disappeared and had to be recovered. Now, an interesting question from Krista Starkdups on Facebook, and we probably have already touched on some of these, but she wanted to know, what are some common misconceptions about the Maya civilization? Yeah, I, lo I love this one. Um, I love this one. I've, I've, I've even thought about somehow writing something um, that actually answers that very question. 
over the course of, I don't know, even like a small book or something, um, because there are so many. Um, and I, I think we have covered some of them already, Rob, but I think the, the most obvious initial one is that the Maya don't exist anymore, that they mm-hmm. disappeared. And not only that, but they disappeared in some kind of mysterious way. Um, and that that rather than questioning that fact, in, instead, over over the last hundred years uh, or more, uh, people have come up with with increasingly outlandish um, explanations as to as to what happened to them, including one which um, you'll think is kind of fringe and crazy, but you'd be amazed at how much you can find this repeated online or in published books. And that is that the Mayas were aliens, uh, that they, the reason that they were able to create such spectacular cities with a beautiful writing system, that they were able to understand the movement of the planets to uh, create an advanced calendar and mathematics is because they'd come from outer space. And what happened to the Maya? Where did they go? They went back to the planet they came from, right? <laughs> I mean, you see the appeal of it. It does kind of like wrap up all these questions in a nice tidy bow. Um, so uh, I think the misconceptions that they is that they disappeared, uh, and they're not. They didn't disappear. They're still with us. Is uh, is one of the big ones? Of course. Then the next question is, well, why do people think they disappeared? Like, what happened there? Um, and that really is a slightly different question. So let me just put that aside for now. <laughs> let me just let me just identify one other common misconception. And, and this is brought up in a couple of the other questions here as well. So I think we might be able to answer them all in one go. Um, whether you have seen the Mel Gibson movie Apocalypto or not, and, you know, some listeners will and some won't, you still are going to have an impression that is the same impression many people have about the Aztecs. And that is that they were a very violent society, that their society, their culture was oriented around um, something that we love to call human sacrifice. Uh, and I have a, a real problem with that phrase, human sacrifice. Um, this is where I will get into big arguments with other historians and anthropologists and archaeologists who don't see a problem with it. I think when uh, people in early modern Britain or Spain were burned alive at the stake for political and religious reasons, we don't talk about that as human sacrifice. Right? We only talk about ritual, political, and religious executions by other people as being human sacrifice. So we place it in this kind of other exotic uh, category. The fact is, is that the Maya were no more violent than any other civilization or culture, nor were they any less violent. Um, that they did not practice so-called human sacrifice on any kind of a, of a massive scale. Were people ritually executed? Yes. Were offerings made to deities? Yes. But the vast majority of cases, those offerings, not only were they not human, they weren't even, uh, you know, animals. It was it was plants and and herbs and incense, and then beyond that, more likely would be um, animals like chickens, white chickens. Um, then there was self-sacrificial um, rituals that people would engage in, where you might cut yourself to let some blood, and the blood would go on a sacred piece of paper or or, or something like that. Um, the actual 
ritualized execution of a, of a human being happened relatively rarely. And I would argue probably less often than that kind of thing was happening during the same time period in, in, in Europe. Uh, so I think for me, those are the two big ones, right? The Maya did not disappear. And no, they weren't dragging people up the steps of pyramids and cutting their hearts out all the time. Um, as, as the Spanish friars would have us believe, uh, and they would have loved Apocalypto. And that's, that, that right there is, is the most damning thing I can say about that film. Um, okay, so coming on to the Maya way of life, uh, we had quite a few questions about this, actually. And Joe Pierce on Twitter wanted to know, what was the status of women in Maya culture? Were there any women in leadership or positions of authority? Yeah, this is a, it's a difficult question to answer because um, it's not clear. And I think it, it actually, it's an interesting question because this is very much one of the um, kind of cutting edge questions and areas of Maya studies right now. Uh, it was long thought that um, Maya political culture, for example, was uh, completely patriarchal, uh, that only men were in positions of rule, um, and what a surprise, that's what you would expect because that's what the world was like in other societies in the same kind of time period. Um, but now it has started to become clear that actually there were various circumstances under which women could rule and that women played a far more important role in Maya politics than was previously realized and that my women who appear in my art or in my hieroglyphs um, as royal or noble and having particular important positions as being exceptions. That was kind of the idea, you know, it's like, well, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria are kind of exceptions because really England was ruled by kings. It's that kind of idea. Um, now it's sort of that, that notion has, is beginning to kind of uh, break up a little bit. Um, and there's an understanding that uh, not just at, at the political level, but also moving down through society at the level of commoners, that there was a division of labor by, by gender that actually gave Maya women more status than was previously thought. So what that leads to then is the suggestion that um, Maya women lost status as a result of the arrival of Europeans and the imposition of Spanish colonialism and Spanish colonial culture. Um, so that argument, therefore, is, is that early modern um, Western civilization uh, was more sexist and misogynistic than the, than the ancient Maya were. Um, I, I mean, it's just an argument, right? I'm a little suspicious of these kinds of broad statements. But that's the idea that, that when we look at the roles that Maya women were playing in the colonial periods of the 16th through 19th centuries and, and beyond that, that's, we can sort of point our finger at Europeans. Um, I think that's probably overly, overly simplistic. If, if you're looking for an answer saying, oh, Maya society was wonderful, it wasn't patriarchal, it was completely matriarchal, then there isn't any evidence of, of that. But I'm not sure there's evidence of that anywhere in the world, I'm afraid. Not yet, maybe in the 22nd century. Okay, so one subject that seems to come up, I think, with every topic we do in this podcast series is food. Mm. And sure enough, lots of people online have been searching for the question, what did the Maya eat? 
there's one word, when someone asks what did the mite eat, there's one word that always has to come out of your mouth first, and that is corn. Maize, or as we would call it, corn. That was the the staple of their diet and was so important to the Maya that they thought of it as a, as a sacred substance. Um, they believed that corn had been provided to them or for them um, by the gods. And in Maya mythology, all the way back to Maya creation mythology, uh, corn plays a really important role um, it's 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 woven in there all the way through all of that mythology, um, and the Maya were it, it, sort of it's a reasonable to make a generalization. The Maya were corn farmers. All Maya were corn farmers. Um, corn farming was uh, a sort of a prestigious activity that everybody got to participate in. There's even some suggestions that uh, elite. Mayas engaged in corn farming as well, even though they didn't have to. And that, and that certainly is the case during the Spanish colonial period, where high-ranking Mayas in small towns and villages also have cornfields. And there's nothing demeaning about them going out and, and doing work in their, in their milpa or their cornfields. That's how important it was. In addition to corn, um, they ate uh, squash, uh, beans, Lots of uh, white chili peppers and peppers of all kinds um, that are native to the Maya area. Tomatoes, which um, you know, as you know, come from come from Mexico uh, and were not known and in in Europe. Even though it's hard to imagine European cuisines without tomatoes, um, chocolate also was native to that area and again was not known. Uh, anywhere else in the world until Europeans arrived. Uh, so uh, things, uh, uh, certain kinds of items like that, which we very much associate with Western cuisine, uh, were, were things that, that the Maya got to enjoy. Chocolate was not eaten, uh, eaten. It was drunk, and it was could not be sweetened with sugar because the Maya did not have sugar. Sugar is an old, old world um, plant. So they sweetened it with honey, but they also cut its bitterness with chili peppers. So, uh, they would, they would drink a frothy, um, hot chocolate drink that was also spicy. And that also was seen as having, uh, sort of sacred connections, uh, along with corn. And in fact, you could also mix corn with it as well to, to kind of thicken it. In terms of meats, the range of Animals that the Maya had to eat was far smaller than Europeans had. And so there were some um, animals that were comparable. So they had turkeys, not chickens. Uh, they had small deer, not large deer. Um, they did not have uh, pigs and cows and, and all those kinds of animals as well. They ate a lot of fish. And the Yucatan Peninsula as its name suggests, is, is, is on three sides, is coastline. Um, uh, and so even though the, the Maya area was not an island, it's surrounded by a lot of coastline and fish and seafood played an important part of um, kind of Maya, the Maya diet as well as their mythology. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Well, okay. In the spirit of that question, I'll say... Actually, what happened was the world ended 
in December of 2012. Um, and now we're all living in the afterworld. We just don't know it, right? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, um, we had a question that came in from Sam on Twitter who asked, how did the common people live? What was their standard of living? I think one way to answer that question is to think about population. So um, there are six or seven million Mayas today. They were probably about that many Mayas um, when, when Spaniards first showed up in the early 16th century, maybe a little bit more. And at some point going back centuries, there were more Mayas than that. So we're talking about a fairly significant population of millions of people. And in the classic period, uh, the really big population centers were in northern Guatemala, which is rainforest. So how did how did how were the Maya able to sustain themselves in that area, an area which even today does not have any any large cities? Not only to sustain themselves, but to sustain themselves in huge cities. Um, what did that mean in terms of their relationship to the environment and how they were able to modify that environment to provide food for people? And um, the answer was that they developed some uh, extraordinary skills uh, and techniques um, for sustaining a large population that would have provided um, a respectable standard of living. You can't have a, you can't have cities like that in which people are mal- malnourished and suffering and so on. Now there's a twist. 
is you also can't do it forever. Something's going to happen. Um, there's, there may be the trigger, maybe warfare that breaks out. The trigger may be um, climatic shift. It might be something dramatic, like a, a you know a couple of really bad hurricane years. Um, it, it could be plagues of locusts or drought, or it could be a combination of all, all of those things. And in fact, that is what happens. Is there's a combination of those things and and archaeologists are still trying to figure out there's a little bit of kind of chicken and egg um the warfare that increased uh was that a result of environmental changes or was it the other way around um but um these huge cities could no longer be sustained and people's effectively using the phrase of the question standard of living dropped um and that's that's one of the clues and reasons why um, this myth uh, has been around for so long that the Maya disappeared. Because if you go to those cities, you can see they're empty, they were abandoned in some cases a thousand years ago. Um, they have been abandoned for a long time. So when the Europeans very first went into those cities hundreds of years ago, they were clearly all overgrown, abandoned. And local Maya people couldn't tell them much that was satisfying to them about who had built those cities. But the Maya didn't disappear, right? They just moved. <laughs> so population centers shifted. Uh, so did that mean that, therefore, you have hundreds of years of Mayas with a bad standard of living, living badly? No, it, it just meant that they, they moved to where they were able to sustain themselves better. We had a question actually still thinking about cities and that kind of thing uh, from cstan82 on Instagram, who wrote in to ask, what would the soundscape of a Maya town have been like? What would the soundscape of a Maya town have been like? One aspect of Maya life that we don't know much about, um, but is another one of these cutting-edge topics in Maya studies, is Maya music. So um, we know from Maya art that they had many instruments. Um, they had all different kinds of drums and flutes and a wide array of instruments, some of which we have a good sense of what they sounded like and some we don't. Um, and it it appears as if music accompanied much of Maya life, um, public ritual that was political, religious, um, the ball games. Uh, every Maya city had a ball court or multiple ball courts, and the ball game was a really important part of Maya cultural life. Uh, in cities and towns and even in villages. And there are some signs that the ball game was accompanied by music, that there was music being played all the way through the game. What a surprise. That makes sense to us, right? Um, as a culture that, you know, values ball games. Um, so I, I think that to go back into a Maya town, one of the first things that might surprise us, uh, just because those places now are so silent is, um, I mean, their ancient sites are silent is, Music. We would have heard a music that would be a little bit unlike any music that we would know and would be would be familiar with. Now, one of the best known legacies of the ancient Maya is the site of Chichen Itza in Mexico, and we had a question in about that from Daniel O'Donnell on Facebook. And Daniel wanted to know what purpose did Chichen Itza serve? Was it similar to the Egyptian pyramids? Yes. Um, 
That's a good question. And the, the comparison between the Maya pyramids or, or pyramids anywhere in Mesoamerica and Egyptian pyramids um, is a good one. And the first thing I wish to say about that is that uh, Mesoamerican and Maya pyramids were always designed to be walked up. And that the most important thing on, on those pyramids was the building at the top. Now, it, it was thought for a while that they weren't tombs at all, and that that was a really important difference. Egyptian pyramids are primarily, first and foremost, tombs, and that Maya ones weren't. In fact, um, the more that Maya pyramids have been excavated and tunnels have been dug in and so on, it more it turns out that they are very often tombs. Um, and they are built as tombs and then expanded and rebuilt as tombs again and so on. But they're, that's just a part of what their purpose was. At the top of Maya pyramids, in most cases, were temples. Um, and that was their primary purpose, and that's a little different from the pyramids in Egypt. Maya pyramids also faced onto plazas, um, and they often faced each other, or they faced uh, other buildings that were pyramid-like, but sometimes some miners don't even like the use of the word pyramid because they think it evokes an Egyptian pyramid with a peak. And there were no Maya pyramids that had peaks. They all had steps that go up and then there were buildings on top. And some of them had palaces on top. So they actually were residential complexes on top of these pyramidal platforms. And they they faced each other in plazas that um, had common elements in all Maya cities, but were all slightly different and, and sometimes quite dramatically different and instantly recognizable just as, um, you know, I live in, in America, so this is the first thing I, I think of when I think about cities. So that's New York, that's San Francisco, that's Miami. There's something about the skyline, the city's relationship with the environment, particularly prominent buildings. It's the same in the Maya era. You immediately see that's Palenque, that's Tikal, that's Chichen Itza. Um, there's something very distinctive about the architecture, but at the same time, you also know they're Maya because of the way these pyramids and pyramidal buildings all face central plazas, which would have been full of art, right? And the buildings that we now see are all gray. And I, and I think if you're thinking of Egyptian pyramids, the kind of brown and then the gray Maya pyramids, though Maya pyramids were never gray, they were stuccoed and then painted. So they would have been brightly colored covered in art, uh, portraits of rulers, glyphic texts telling you about those rulers and when they lived and their connection with the gods and their connection with the current ruler and all the uh, marriages they'd had and the great victories they'd had in battle. Um, all of that is, is, is right there. It would have been an incredibly bright, colorful, uh, sort of sensory overload in a way, right? And, and talk about the previous question of sound, if there's full of people there, but there's a political ritual taking place, religious ceremony, there's a markets often are adjacent or spill over into these areas. So there would be a lot of people engaging in kind of noisy market. There's music going on. I, I think um, when you think about somewhere like Chichen Itza and then sort of compare to somewhere else like Egypt, I think... The first thing is to try to make this huge leap of imagination, to imagine it full of people and full of color and text and art and so on. And on a related note, um, what was the Maya belief system, if, if it's possible to summarize that re relatively quickly? 
I don't think it is possible to summarize <laughs> it relatively quickly, but um, uh, there are many different things to say about that. I, I would say one of the first things that comes to mind is that the Maya uh, believed that the the dividing line between the natural and the supernatural, that the, the, the world in which people lived and then the supernatural world of um, people who had previously lived, you know, ancestors, uh, deities, gods, as we like to think of them, that that line is a very blurred line. It is not a, a, a stark, clear line. We we like to think of that line as very being very stark and clear. And in fact, in our secular society, many people don't even recognize that there's such a thing as a kind of supernatural world beyond that line. For the Maya, those two worlds constantly bled over into each other. And so that to live on earth and to live in the Maya world is also to live kind of partly experiencing the supernatural world in in, in multiple ways. Um, and to see how uh, beings from the supernatural world, whether it's ancestors or deified ancestors or, or deities, or uh, at certain points in Maya history, the rulers were seen as sacred rulers and having connections to the supernatural. Um, all those things are kind of manifest in everyday life and in the, in the things that happen where it's kind of the wonders of, of, of nature, um, where it's particular sort of cosmic events that take place. Uh, it, it's not that actually that surprising. It's what you would expect of a, of a society from a thousand years ago. But I think that's the first thing that comes to mind to me. And the second thing that, that comes to mind is this emphasis on, on duality or dualisms. Everything is in pairs. The way in which they kind of conceive of the world is very much in pairs. So no single idea or, or object or living thing existed without its pair. Um, and those pretty obvious ones, like, you know, male and female, young and old, but also it taps into what I just said about natural and supernatural. So everything in the natural world has its kind of supernatural pair. Even in the way in which Myers spoke, the most polite version of, of, of address in Maya languages used something that they, that they love called semantic couplets, where you use two different words that mean the same thing, which sounds a little bit funny to us. It sounds kind of like repetition, um, although it's actually quite commonly found in our culture. If you look at poetry, I mean, Shakespeare's full of semantic couplets, right? But that's that's very much a part of how this kind of the Maya worldview. On Facebook, Richard uh, Foynet or Foynet wrote in to say, "I'd love to know how they devised their calendar. They seem to have very advanced mathematics and astronomical observation." We don't know how it began, right? The, the origins of the of the calendar, but um, it's very clear that it evolved from. Um, observations of the movements of the, the the planets and stars the of the night sky, and those um, as as Richard says, those observations over hundreds of years became extremely sophisticated, and they charted those movements. They recorded them um, in great detail over time, and then used them in order to create a very complex calendar, which matches all those different movements. So you know, our relationship with the sun and the moon and Venus and so on, all are reflected in a, in a, in a complex calendar. 
Um, and when I talk about the Maya calendar, say with, with undergraduates, there's two different ways of doing it, right? The first way is to just throw the complexity of it at them and, and talk about how they're, you know, well, in any one particular day, that day um, fitted into multiple calendars. There was a calendar of, uh, you know, 20 day months, and there were 13 of those in a year, but there's other year calendars as well. There's the long count of which is a, which is a cycle that stretched from 3,114 BC to 2012. So it's a, a cycle uh, of over 5,000 years um, that the Maya, because they had a concept of zero and they had multiple calendars, they were able to count back and forward, not just millions of years, but by billions of years. And because they also had a, a writing system that was vigesimal, they were able to use that system just as the way we can, in our decimal system, add zeros to create bigger numbers, to create vast, enormous dates. So that's one way is to, is to kind of dazzle the viewer or listener with the complexity of it. But the other way is to say, think about our own calendar, right? Today is Wednesday, so it's part of a seven-day cycle, but it also has a number attached to it, and there's a month, and then there's a year. But then within that year, it's it's also within a century. But then there are also other ways in which we kind of map time and have calendars to do with whatever it is, the presidential eras or and uh, the connection to religion because of the way in which we number our years. So uh, you can make that more and more complex if you want. And we learn that as children and we handle it just fine. The Maya calendar is just like that. It is multi-layered and complex and, and deep-rooted. And ultimately, the message that I like to convey is um, let's think of the Maya as being no less or more civilized than us. Let's think of the Maya as a civilization that we can relate to. That yes, they did many things differently, um, and yes, they lived. Uh, if we're talking about the ancient Maya in a different time period, where expectations of values might be be different, but um, it we understand them better if we try not to kind of exoticize them too much. Let's be wowed by their astronomical and mathematical knowledge, but at the same time, not make that too otherly and too exotic. Right? Let's let's kind of see it as something that we can relate to as well. And imagine once we get over the language barrier, we can sit down with a Maya guy who lived in the year 1000 AD and be able to talk about mathematics, you know, and be able to see how quickly we would be able to un understand each other and see how we use numbers, you know, in our everyday life and, and, and how we saw those numbers kind of relating to, uh, you know, to the cosmos and the universe and, the, and, and our place within it. And when we're talking about the calendar, of course, we, we were going to have a question about this. And Moa on Twitter, I think perhaps perhaps jokingly asked, what happened after 2012? <laughs> well, okay. In the spirit of that question, I'll say, actually what happened was the world ended in December of 2012. Um, and now we're all living in the afterworld. We just don't know it, right? Yeah, I mean, this, is, this was for a long time, um, was a great... Uh, sort of opening for people like me to talk about the Maya. So there was a few years there in 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, because the, the, the date that supposedly the Maya predicted the world would end was, in, you know, was, in, was at the end of 2012 in December, um, where I got to uh, reach audiences, right? People who otherwise I wouldn't have been able to, to talk to. And so it was, it was kind of a wonderful thing. Um, 
I'm glad the world did not end. Uh, I, it, no, the Maya did not predict that the world would end. And that was kind of the obvious message. Um, and all Mayanists of any kind, you know, anthropologists, archaeologists, art historians, historians, all agreed. It's like, no, that's not what they said. Um, they had a calendar that we call the long count, which I'd mentioned earlier, that was a, a run of about 5,000 years. But just like our centuries or our millennia, there was no implication anywhere in that calendrical mathematical structure that the end is other than a resetting of the odometer. Just as we, yes, okay, I do realize that in at Y2K, 1999, 2000, there's sort of talk of the end of the world and so on. And that's actually relevant to this topic because that's about Western civilization, not about the Maya. Um, but that system of, of numbers and calendars was not created because in 1999 it's supposed to end. It's supposed to roll over to 2000. So it's the same with the Maya calendar and the date is actually 13 and then a string of zeros. And when it gets to that 13.000 point, it just starts again with another set of 13.00 and the next more than 5,000 year cycle. Um, so the, there's a story there about how that came about the misconception that the Maya predicted the world um, would end, which is now, you know, kind of an old story. And it's just to do with a few um, misconceptions and misreadings of a couple of Maya monuments and a few things that were sort of posted online. And how did it blow up into something so big? It's a combination of factors that don't really have anything to do with the Maya, right? The timing happens to be when the internet took off in the 1990s. It happens to be when there were other uh, predictions of things like that going to happen, like Y2K, and there was a lot of um, uh, anxiety uh, in the wake of 9-11. And there's also been, in recent decades, a huge explosion in the West and, to some extent, actually everywhere in the world in um, conspiracism, with a kind of explosion of conspiracy um, theories, and that has accompanied is just not exactly the same as millenarianism or anxiety over the apocalypse. But there's a there's an overlap there. So there's something has been going on in the world recently that has nothing to do with the Maya, and the Maya just conveniently kind of came along and were appropriated to kind of pick up on that. And 2012 passed, the world didn't end people stopped thinking so much about the Maya, but all of that anxiety is still around. And, and in fact, that kind of um, apocalyptic anxiety and conspiracism has increased since 2012. It hasn't, hasn't declined. Um, this is why I'm happy to have opportunities like this to keep talking about the Maya, because I think they're really fascinating. And there are misconceptions out there, which are kind of a nice to explode. Now, one of the misconceptions that you exploded earlier on was this idea of the Maya disappearing. But I still think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about what happened when the Europeans arrived and what that meant for the Maya. And we did have a question from MHFQ on Instagram who wanted to know, what was the trajectory for the Maya had Spanish colonisation not happened? Yeah, okay. So there's... There's already kind of two great questions in here, and I, I'm going to answer the MHFQ question first because I love that. Um, I love that because it allows us to kind of use our imagination, right? It's a little bit of sort of 
counterfactual speculation, which is kind of fun. Um, looking at Maya history over the thousands of years before Spaniards arrived in the 16th century, I think we can find clues in there as to what Maya history would have been like over the succeeding centuries, particularly two things. One is, um, although the Maya were never united in, a, in one empire, um, there were moments in which city-states were able to expand and dominate um, fairly substantial regions within the Maya area. And around 1500, um, none of them controlled a very large area. Uh, but there was a cycle and that it's reasonable for us to expect that in the 100, perhaps 200, more likely just the 100 years that would have um, followed uh, into we move to the 16th, 17th century, um, a city-state would have expanded up in the Yucatan, would have maybe dominated a significant part of the peninsula. The same thing might have happened down in Highland Guatemala. There were two Maya states, the Quiche and the Cachiquel, that had been um, rivals, and it's reasonable to imagine one of them kind of expanding and dominating the area. Um, perhaps more interesting, because the other thing I think that would have happened is I think the Aztecs probably would have invaded. Um, now, would they have been able to, you know, conquer the whole Maya area? No, no one has ever managed to do that. It, it's too geographically diverse. It's too um, divided up politically. Uh, it's not centralized in a way that would have made that easy. But um, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, the Aztecs knew exactly um, who the Maya were and what their resources were, were and so on. And so... It's very reasonable for us to imagine that at some point during that century, 16th century, Aztecamis would have penetrated into the Maya area and would have established some tributary um, territories or, or, or states within the Maya zone. And in fact, what I, I think is particularly interesting about that is that actually does happen, but under circumstances that are surprising. So when... Spaniards attempt in the 16th century to establish colonies in the Maya area. They try to, you know, conquer the Maya. They can't. Um, they fail. Uh, what results is uh, terrible violence. Um, you, it's illegal in the Spanish Empire to enslave indigenous peoples, but they do anyway, and there's a loophole during warfare. So there's enslavement, there's slaughter, diseases coming in. Um, the Spaniards fail, uh, but the listener is thinking, that can't be the case because there were Spanish colonies in Guatemala, in Yucatan. Yes, how do they do it? They come back, the Spaniards, with tens of thousands of warriors from central Mexico, Nahua warriors, um, the vast majority of whom were previous subjects of the Aztec Empire. In fact, you could even call them Aztecs in a way, even though that empire doesn't exist after 1521. So, um, not only do they march into Maya areas, they settle in the areas that they might have settled anyway, even without Spanish intervention, um, and create communities in Highland Guatemala and in northern Yucatan of Nahua speakers, migrants, conquerors from central Mexico. Um, not many people know about it because the Spaniards downplayed it. The Spaniards wanted to make it all about them, their conquests, and those indigenous people very quickly marry in with local Maya populations. Um, and as a kind of separate ethnic group, they slowly disappear. 
in a couple of towns in Highland Guatemala, there still is a memory of that separateness and that identity. Um, in Yucatan, it di disappears almost almost completely. But there was another question in there about disappearance. Um, so when people say, well, why did the Maya disappear? And I say, well, they didn't disappear. Uh, then they respond like, okay, well, you know, am I, am I an idiot for thinking they disappeared? And it's like, absolutely not. You're not at all. That There's a reason why that myth is out there. And it's constantly, constantly reinforced at all kinds of levels, whether it's you know, the idea that I mentioned earlier that some people think that the Mayas were aliens that went back to their home planet, um, or whether it's people who go um, travel as tourists and they go to see Maya sites um, like Chichen Itza. And hey, it's an empty site. Clearly no one's lived there for a very long time. So there were two things that did happen. There were two moments in Maya history that have fed into this, this idea that the Maya disappeared. And the first one I talked a, a little bit about earlier um, to do with uh, the decline of populations in the big cities, particularly in northern Guatemala, which was kind of the, uh, the center of um, population and economic and political power uh, in this classic period. So kind of what is equivalent to kind of late medieval period in Europe. Um, those cities became abandoned and were inhabited by smaller populations that weren't building big buildings and creating big monuments, so they didn't leave much of a trace. Um, or they moved and the centers moved to other areas. And that, for a long time, kind of created this idea that there was something that had, had disappeared, particularly before the glyphs could be read and before it was understood that the Maya area comprised the whole of the Yucatan Peninsula as well as the whole of Guatemala and Belize. Um, so that kind of, that myth has kind of persisted. Then the other thing that happened was Spanish colonialism. It wasn't that the Spanish came in and conquered the whole Maya area um, or, you know, killed everybody and they all died off or they all carted off as slaves, something like that. It was mostly the impact of, of epidemic disease. But, you know, we've been living through a, a hard time in terms of a pandemic, but the pandemics that hit areas like the Maya area in the 16th century um, were on a completely different scale. So the population, the Maya population, we don't know exactly what it was before Spaniards arrived. And we don't even know exactly what it was 100 years later because Spaniards had not conquered most of the Maya area. Most of those towns and villages were still independent. But that population drop was something in the region of 80 to 90%. Right. So what that means is there are entire uh, towns and villages that become depopulated. I mean, you, th that kind of decline in population doesn't happen overnight, right? But there are moments where suddenly you get attack of epidemic disease and outbreak of smallpox and in the course of weeks or months, then half the population of the town die. Um, if that's happening at the same time that there are repeated invasions that may or may not be happening right where you live. They may be in an adjacent area of Spaniards coming in with warriors from central Mexico. So all of that is extremely disruptive. And um, the it, it means that from that point on, there are not Maya city-states, independent Maya city-states, building cities like Chichen Itza. Um, and that kind of reinforces this idea that 
or the Maya disappeared. If they didn't disappear at the time of the so-called collapse, they went into decline and then Span Europeans came and that kind of wipes them out. So uh, there are reasons for the, for those two myths, right? And they're interesting um, and, and important, um, but it's just as important to recognize that millions of Mayas still exist today and that they that they survived they they accommodated and adjusted and and their culture today is still a Maya culture still a Maya civilization just because you have a cell phone and you're watching satellite television and you're also speaking Spanish as well as Maya um, and and doing other things that connect you to being in the 21st century doesn't mean to say you're not still a Maya person and you're part of perpetuating Maya civilization that was Matthew Restall. He's the author of several books on the Maya, including The Maya, A Very Short Introduction, which was co-written by Amara Solari and published last year by Oxford University Press. We love hearing from you, so please do let us know your thoughts about the podcast by leaving us a review or dropping us an email. One listener that did drop us an email recently was Jessica Beamish, who wanted to wish her boyfriend a happy 29th birthday. So happy birthday and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a special podcast with Dan Jones to mark episode number 1000.